So other than uh, after uh, trying to remember where we got to that day, I was sick. What did you, what did you have before the ontological argument? The rise of universities? I was not here that day. Oh, great. I Man. You called me out and was hoping I could guess the pseudo-Isidorian decretals because I listened to it after, but I can't remember where you ended so you didn't take notes. Wow, man. Total disappointment. Total disappointment. And sadly, you're the only person I can ask because George isn't here. So no one else. Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't think we did the scholastic. We did scholasticism. Uh, we, did, we did through Aquinas. Uh, we talked about... Uh, Women as misbegotten men, I do remember that. Uh, but I was sick that day, I was sitting down. And uh, yeah, I, I don't remember doing the rise of universities, but we can just be really brief on that, anyways. And uh, then I, I, think, I think I said we were going to get into the Inquisition. I'm not sure. Oh, you did. Okay, all right, all right. No one expects the no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. Spanish Inquisition. They expect the French Inquisition. But it's because they can smell them coming. But because uh, the food, you know. <laughs> I said the food. You know, they make very nice food. Um, very, very great pastries. Pastries. I don't remember what day it was. I. You talked about Avalard. Talked about uh, pseudo Yeah, no, it's it's past that. Okay, it's past that. It was the day I was sick, and we had we had we had uh, we had already gotten into scholasticism, and we had gone through scholasticism. So we'll we'll start here, and and this will be this will be this will be good. Um, I'm pretty certain I do remember talking about the rise of universities. Um, uh, I think I m- remember mentioning um, four faculty areas, the arts, which would be a general education, theology, law, and medicine. Um, I don't remember if I mentioned the students apply between 14 and 18 years of age. We, uh, that's not really how things work anymore, uh, thanks to video games. Uh, so that uh, wouldn't be good. A University of Paris, I mentioned around AD 1200 by... 1400, there are about 75 universities. And, and I, I think I finished off by saying that was going to be extremely important to the rise of the Reformation. And then said, next time we get together, when I'm feeling better, the Inquisition. Well, instead, last week we did um, the ontological argument. Everyone, everybody who was here last week would feel comfortable if I gave you a pop quiz right now, asked you to stand up uh, in front of us all and explain the ontological argument. Yeah, I didn't think so. Well, Brother Callahan. Brother Callahan has... Uh, has um, but how many times have you explained the ontological argument uh, over the years? Yeah, uh, more, more than once. More than once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we, got, we got one person that can do the ontological. I don't know that I would want to try to do the ontological argument, uh, honestly. Um, it's that, that, you know, during that course of the week, you live life, and, uh, and so it just all leaks out. Okay, the Inquisition. Well, let me tell you, there are um, 
And for those of you who might be visiting, we're doing church history. We have been for, what, what are we up to, 50-something, 40? 49. 49. We're getting close. Yeah, 49 uh, lessons in uh, church history. We're up to uh, the medieval period, uh, Middle Ages, and getting toward um, the Reformation eventually here. Uh, last time I did this back in the 90s, we did it in only 52 sessions. It's going to take about twice that for this run-through. So. Um, not that anything new happened uh, during that time period. Uh, just discovered new things or something. I'm just getting uh, slower with old age, I guess. Um, there are numerous books out on the Inquisition. And unfortunately, it, like uh, many other controversial issues of the past, uh, tends to prompt... Uh, a wide range of analysis, and it's difficult to really rummage through all of that and come to the truth. I mean, the, the numbers, for example, that I have heard of the number of people executed or imprisoned by the Inquisition, you know, it depends on what you're talking about, the Spanish Inquisition or the Inquisition as a whole or in what century... Uh, have differed on, an, on a magnitude of a thousand to ten million. So, I mean, that's, that's many magnitudes of order. And the truth is somewhere in between the two, obviously, but it does make you wonder a little bit when you have such a massive breadth of uh, perspective. And obviously, uh, after the Reformation, uh, Rome has lots of reasons to minimize uh, the extent and character of the Inquisition. And uh, uh, certainly at the time of the Reformation, uh, Protestants had a lot of reason to maximize. So where do you go? Well, there are certain things that, that are fairly agreed upon in regards to the Inquisition. Um, In 1199, Innocent III, you may recall him as one of the most powerful of the medieval popes, equated heresy with treason in a papal bull, which makes sense uh, in a sacral system. When you have a system of the church, uh, state church, um, uh, heresy is a rebellion not only against... uh, God-ordained truth, but therefore against the uh, lesser authorities of government as well. And it's well known that uh, once the Inquisition was in full swing, the, uh, the explanation was that the religious authorities would analyze someone to see if they were a heretic or not, but the church itself would never bring the final punishment to bear, they would always be turned over to the civil magistrate. Well, of course, civil magistrate had, was nothing more than the instrument. Uh, the civil magistrate couldn't go, ah, I don't think it's all so serious, not to worry about it, because now as a civil magistrate, you find yourself uh, under the scrutiny of the Inquisition, and um, uh, that's not a good thing. So, but the idea was uh, to, in, in a quite honestly, fictional manner, maintain the distinction between the secular arm and the ecclesiastical arm. Um, In general, and obviously this would would change, in general, 
what you had in the Inquisition was a mobile court, a mobile court uh, that would move from place to place. And it had certain officers in this mobile court. Uh, you had the inquisitor himself. And of course, the term, to, it, you know, it's to inquire. It's to make uh, inquiry into something. It's to look into something. And so normally the inquisitor was a monk, uh, well-educated, uh, literate, uh, with uh, you know, a certain level of, uh, of legal knowledge uh, as well. Um, you would have examiners, which, um, depending on the situation, uh, would be more or less uh, the torturers. Um, eventually, uh, the idea was, you know, there, there were, there was the use of such things as the rack and other forms. Uh, the thumbscrew was exceptionally um, uh, effective at exposing heresy. And if you have ever whacked your thumb with a, with a hammer, uh, you know why that is. Uh, of course, you only whacked it once, and, uh, and that was it. But the thumb screw is a continuous uh, pressure upon the end of that bone. It's extremely excruciating. Um, and if you're tied down with that thing, uh, you're going to do anything you can to stop that, uh, that agony. Um, uh, this was used, for example, uh, during the uh, Black Plague, the Black Death, or as they, we mentioned before, what they called the Great Mortality, um, and uh, uh, be used on Jews to get them to confess that they had poisoned wells and things like that, which resulted in the um, destruction of Jewish communities. Um, but... Um, uh, these uh, examiners were not always like that. It wasn't always that situation. There were actually uh, some people that would just simply make meaningful inquiry, but as things, as it became more of a political tool, uh, you have less and less of the uh, humans involved and uh, more of the others. Um, you have Associus, who is a personal advisor to the Inquisitor. You had the guards, and then you had a scribe, and that's why we know as much as we do about uh, the Inquisition is uh, they kept records, and obviously not all those records have survived to our day, uh, but some have. And one might profitably speculate as to uh, sort of historical editing in the sense of which records have come down to our day and which ones didn't. Um, and maybe there's some still not generally in public view, who knows. <coughs> but there was a um, literary record kept. And to be honest with you, this is some, sometimes this is the only source of information we have about some of the most obscure groups during the period of the Inquisition. Um, when you talk, we've all heard, well, most of us have heard of the Waldensians, the followers of Peter Waldo, um, and the Albigensians and, and a number of different groups, um, smaller groups primarily in the region of the Alps there in, in Europe where you could sort of hide away. Um, most of our knowledge 
uh, of those groups and their beliefs do not come to us from their own writings. None of their writings have survived to this day. Uh, they come to us through the mediation of these scribes uh, writing down what was said in the examination of these heretics. Now, as you can imagine, if you know, put yourself in that situation, let's say you were uh, living in that day and you were uh, arrested. It strikes me very often as, as pretty astounding how people can hear what I say. And if they have a fundamental bias against my position, it's, a, it's just amazing uh, how twisted it is what they hear. It's, it's like I, I can say three sentences, they hear two of them, ignore two of them, and misinterpret one of the other two. Um, and so it's, it's diff- that's what makes it difficult to, with accuracy, uh, really determine uh, exactly what these groups believed because there's this unpleasant bias in the recording of much of this, this material. But basically what you have is, is you would have the Inquisition coming into uh, a town and uh, eventually it, it, it became a time of, of terror for everyone because of the, of the way it was put together. Um, you could have a general Inquisition where uh, these groups would simply go from place to place and they've been tasked with uh, protecting the purity of the faith. And then you can have a special inquisition. Uh, summoned, um, uh, a summons is sent to a suspected heretic. And he is, uh, is demanded that he appear uh, before uh, the inquisition because that person has been named. Well, you know, when the general inquisition comes to town, what, what you're concerned about is, you know, might that neighbor that has been having a, a dispute with me uh, accuse me of something. This happens today, for example, in Afghanistan, uh, in Pakistan. Um, the Christians there live in, in constant terror uh, because it is well known uh, in light of the presumption of their guilt under Islamic law that they can easily be accused of having uh, torn out pages from a Quran or something like that. And uh, uh, hence are, are accused and, and just assumed to be uh, in, uh, in the wrong. And the very setup of the inquisitory court was such that it was closed and private. Um, it was very easy to convict because the inquisitor had complete control over all the proceedings. The accused had no right to face uh, or examine any uh, accusers that might exist uh, for consistency, for being able to say, well, that guy stole my cow last year and he's mad because the local magistrate t- forced him to give me my cow back and so he's just attacking me because of that. You, you don't even know who's made the, the, the accusation. Um, thank you very much. Um, I guess, uh, let's see here. There we go. Oh, oh, sound effects all the way up. Oh, that's right. You, this is the same one we were listening to Jason Lyle on, so you had to be able to hear him speaking. Otherwise, he would have been uh, sign, signing to us uh, there on Sunday night. Anyway, um, uh, there was no defense lawyer. Uh, you, you basically represented yourself. Uh, as I said, you often had uh, the thumbscrew being used and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you confessed, 
uh, it was not uh, an absolute given that automatically you're going to be executed or something like that. Um, there could be penances. There, there, you know, it depended on the inquisitor. It depended upon the infraction, uh, so on and so forth. Um, but if you uh, absolutely uh, refused uh, to acknowledge the accusations against you, and yet the inquisitor determined that you were guilty, uh, then uh, there would be the option of execution, normally by burning. Uh, and uh, that, of course, uh, in of itself was partly, uh, the, you know, we might say, what, what a horrific way to execute. Well, the problem is this was a mechanism that had a religious overtone to it. It was a purifying of the society. It was a removal of uh, a, a, a pollution within the society. And uh, it also uh, uh, sort of got rid of the, well, the problems of uh, what do you do with the body if you just simply run somebody through with a sword. You, uh, you can't allow them to be buried in holy ground, for example. But if they're burned to ashes, then that uh, doesn't really matter a, a whole lot at that particular point in time. And so um, uh, even, unfortunately, uh, at that point, there would be, uh, mankind came up with various ways of doing things. Uh, there were fast burnings and there were slow burnings. Um, you could, uh, and unfortunately, the Inquisition knew about these things. If you wished to be uh, merciful to someone, uh, you would not only make sure that you had dry wood, um, but you would place a uh, sack of gunpowder around their neck so that once the uh, flames got that high, the gunpowder would go off and kill them. Uh, another way, of course, uh, you'll see some of the execution poles um, had holes drilled through them, and you would put a leather thong through it. And once you tied the person to it, you would use the leather thong to uh, choke them. And you would literally kill them uh, that way, and so they wouldn't feel the pain of the burning. But you would still burn the body so that there wouldn't be relics or there wouldn't be the issue of the burial and, and, and everything like that. Uh, unfortunately, the Inquisition uh, rarely had that level of mercy and recognized that green wood would burn much more slowly. Um, and once, uh, once there was, you, you think back to Rome, you think back to the Colosseum, uh, there is a, there's a bloodthirstiness amongst crowds. Um, and, and you might say, I can't believe people were like that back then. Why do you think people watch NASCAR? What are you watching for when you're watching NASCAR? You're waiting for the next wreck because you know there's going to be one. Um, it's not quite the same. It's all high tech now, but there is a part of that uh, that you know if you get a if you get a whole race through all on the on the green, no wrecks. It's sort of like, oh, well, <laughs> who won? Ah, who cares? You know, I didn't get to see the exciting part. You know, um, and so uh, the Inquisition would make it to where they would put people above the fire and literally roast them over the course of hours. Um, and it was a, a horrific uh, sight and a horrific... And of course, from the Inquisition's perspective, that also provided an even greater um, application of the fear 
uh, in people's hearts. You don't, you don't want to go that way. Uh, that's, that's the worst possible way in the world to go. Um, connected with the Inquisition is the medieval subject of witchcraft. And it's not just the medieval period, because you know uh, that this uh, you know, continues into even American history uh, in regards to the Salem witch trials and things like that. So this is uh, something that extends over many uh, centuries. And again, the numbers hard to really uh, tracked down when I was in seminary. You know, my, my church history professor was not some wild-eyed uh, Jack Chickian type guy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but uh, even he said that in, in the course of his, his best estimate was that between 1,200 and 1,700, uh, about one million women um, died uh, as witches over that 500 years. Um, now, that's 500 years is a long time, but, you know, do the math, it's still uh, a, fair, a fair number of people each, uh, each year. And uh, the ratio of men to women accused and convicted was 1 to 20. Um, so it was almost all uh, women who were accused of this. And why was that? Well, it was believed that Satan was a male spirit. Hence, uh, since witchcraft was closely related to sexuality, women were accused much more often than men were. Well, of course, and the men were in charge of the Inquisition, too. I suppose that had something uh, to do with it. Uh, The Inquisition against witches primarily centered in France, Germany, Scotland, England, and Italy. Uh, So primarily a very much European uh, concept. Uh, the popes were big into this. Uh, there's, there's much papal writing on the subject of the Inquisition against uh, witches. Uh, Gregory IX in the 13th century decided that Satan had shifted his strategy to a frontal attack against the church via witchcraft. And so in 1223, Gregory gave papal credence to many popular concepts, He said Satan had recently appeared in Germany as a toad, a black cat, and a ghost. Uh, Satan inhibits production in animals, plants, and men. So if there is a downturn in crop production, uh, if your goats aren't having enough kids, uh, milk production, whatever else it might be, uh, this is probably due to a witch in your area, and so you start looking Uh, especially at the odd women, uh, maybe the odd unmarried women uh, in your area, and uh, they're probably casting hexes on your your animals and things like that. Um, And then when the Pope is saying, yeah, this is, mm, you got it, um, that obviously uh, gives great credence. Uh, Boniface VIII and his physician, Arnold of Villanova, in 1294, made a quasi-scientific study of witchcraft and sexuality. And then Innocent VIII, uh, in 1484, issued the Summus Desiderantes. Uh, this would be an official papal uh, statement in regards to witchcraft. And two years later, Heinrich Kramer and Jakob Springer, this is very important, 
1486, Heinrich Kramer, Jakob Springer, published, and my wife's not here, so I don't have to write anything down anymore, uh, published uh, Malleus Maleficarum. I suppose I should write that down because this one is sort of, uh, sort of important. This had a huge, huge impact uh, in, uh, in uh, Europe. Malleus... How many, how many, yeah, so I thought, Malleus Maleficarum, I think that's about right, Malleus Maleficarum, a hammer against female witches, a hammer against female witches. Uh, They toured all over Christendom investigating and executing witches. And the book was a codification of popular witch theory uh, based upon their inquisition and their interviews and their experiences as they traveled around uh, Europe. Must have been quite the interesting experience. Um, Some of the uh, popular theories codified by Malleus Maleficarum, which was just taken as a, you know, this was the book. This was... uh, uh, referred to and believed by pretty much everybody. And to be honest with you, the Reformation, the Reformation laid the seeds of moving away from this, but the Reformers wouldn't have really thought of rejecting most of this. Um, you know, uh, we, we talk about Erasmus and the fact that uh, he honestly believed that the mosquitoes which plagued him during the summers and uh, in the warm weather were uh, demons. Uh, and uh, uh, Luther made reference to a certain lake uh, high up in the mountains. If you threw a rock into it, it, a tempest would come up because that lake was the abode of, of demons. Um, and so there was a very strong uh, belief in, in that type of, of thing. And so you, to even question something like the Malleus Maleficarum probably meant you're a witch. Uh, uh, some of us uh, think back to the, uh, the witch trial in uh, a certain British comedy uh, where there's, there's no way out of the accusations. And what that was reflecting was that's sort of how it was. Uh, there was no way out of the, of the accusations. If, if you even dared to question the validity of the questions that meant you were a witch, too. You know, it was just, uh, you know, you're, you're stuck one way or the other. Um, and so um, some of the concepts that were, were codified in the book, um, that there was a pact made with the devil, um, uh, that uh, the, there was something called the witches' sabbat, the midnight meeting of, of witches that they would have, um, there was the incubi and succubi, that is a male and female uh, demons. Uh, the powers of flight. Uh, and who believes that today? When was the last time you saw a rerun of Bewitched? Uh, goes all the way back. Where'd that come from? Malleus Maleficarum. Uh, and you're sitting here going, come on. Uh, 1960s and wiggling your nose. Yeah, yeah, Mal- yeah, Malleus Maleficarum goes all the way back. Now you know where it came from. Anyways. You can now amaze your friends by knowing the Latin title of the book from which that stuff came from. The powers of flight, the powers to inhibit reproduction, 
Um, midwives were very much under suspicion. Uh, yes? What was the year that this was written? 1486. Now realize, 1486 is right before the Reformation. So this is the very same time, time period. Um, uh, powers of flight, powers to inhibit reproduction, midwives. Uh, there was a drop in the number of midwives, just simply because people were afraid, to, you know, which led to even more infant mortality uh, as, as a result, obviously. Uh, the idea of love potions uh, and the casting of hexes. Um, hexa is the Grun word for witch. Uh, so the casting of hexes. Uh, and, and so it was, it was just so easy if, if all of a sudden, you know, something happened to your crops, which might just be blight, it might be, you know, all, you, you didn't sow your seeds right or did it at the wrong period of time. There's just a million different reasons it could be. It was easiest thing to do was to blame it on, you know, your next door neighbor and their weird daughter that uh, is so strange or something along those lines. Um, and so uh, Malleus Maleficarum, widely read, um, and I honestly don't know when in history someone finally you know, just stood up and said, uh, I don't think so. Uh, no, no biblical basis for this stuff. Uh, I mean, this particular codification of things, I don't know when that eventually uh, happened, but obviously... Uh, today, uh, most people have never even heard of it, even though almost everything I just mentioned you have heard of. Um, and it was primarily made a part of cultural identity and understanding through uh, Malleus Maleficarum. Uh, the scholastics believed, sorry ladies, I hate to uh, uh, break this to you, but the scholastics believed that women were weaker both mentally and physically. And so uh, you all know uh, this term, right? Right? Feminine? Normally that's a, that's a nice term. Uh, unless you are a feminist, which many today actually want to try to get along in life without men. That doesn't work for very long. Uh, about one generation and at the end of that. But... Um, where does that come from? It comes from fe minus. What's minus? Minus. What's fe? Faith. Lesser faith. Lesser faith. I see looks on ladies in the room right now. I did not make this up, okay? I, I, I hate to be the bearer of this, this information for you, but... Yes, uh, feminine comes from feminus, which means a lesser faith. And uh, that was literally lacking in faith. And um, so this was the scholastic uh, understanding, and it becomes so much a part, it becomes attached to the very gender language that is used there. Um, they also believe, now this is primarily, keep this in mind, this is primarily monks, <laughs> I think that has something to do with all this, to be honest with you. Um, they also believe that women were deceptive by nature. Um, just as Satan tempted Eve, so he tempts women. They also believe that women uh, had an insatiable lust as well. Again, these were monks uh, that were coming up with these, uh, these concepts. I, I get some projection ideas here, but uh, this was scholastic theology. 
Now, uh, upon being charged, and unfortunately, I would like to be able to say this was only prior to the Reformation, but this is pretty much up through 1700 and pretty much across the, the board, uh, whether in Protestant lands eventually or in Roman Catholic lands. Um, upon being charged, all were pretty much guilty until proven innocent. And given the nature of the accusation, how in the world do you prove innocence? Um, obviously you can see that the problem it was extremely dangerous to say anything in defense of an accused witch so the idea of even trying to find uh, a defense attorney or someone like that they're just as liable to the inquisition or okay the technical term wouldn't be inquisition but uh, in Protestant lands, there were purges of witches and things like that. Just in use of the term inquisition, it would just be the local magistrate and uh, working with the city council and things like that, and the ministers. Um, uh, very, very dangerous, say anything in defense of accused witch, because then you would be accused of being uh, involved as well. Um, they would uh, remove all bodily hair, so they'd shave their heads. So no charms or imps could hide therein. Uh, we haven't gotten there yet, but when, uh, when Luther was debating in Leipzig, uh, he had a, a vase of flowers on his desk, and his opponents, that he would sniff once in a while, his opponents said that the demons were hiding in the flowers, uh, and that that's why he had it on the, on the table. And um, so similar concept here, some way of hiding uh, these spirits. Um, and um, uh, torture was the norm. Uh, the thumbscrew, which was not just used momentarily, but was simply left on, uh, locked in place until uh, the hands became uh, useless and infected, uh, hanging by the arms and being allowed to drop to the ground, uh, causing tremendous pain, of course, putting joints out of, out of place, etc., etc., and the rack was usually the last to be used, but it would be used. And um, these were in incredibly um, uh, painful uh, things that would uh, very often get the, you know, the resulting uh, confession from uh, individuals. Um, obviously, most were burned in light of the nature of the crime. Uh, later in the 1600s, uh, especially after the Reformation, they were hanged uh, as well. Um, but there was, a, you know, and that happened in the history of the colonies in the United States as, uh, as well. So uh, you have that uh, going on at this, uh, at this time period. And uh, it certainly would result in a tremendous uh, amount of fear uh, in, uh, in the society uh, especially if you are one of those that didn't quite fit the, the bell curve norm, you know. Uh, if you are one of those uh, odd people. Um, that whole idea uh, of being able to face your accusers, not a bad idea. And guess what? That's biblical. Hmm. Sure, I hope that's the neighbors and not someone's car right outside. Uh, <laughs> not sure you can see through those windows, but... Uh, it might be good for at least one person just to, just to check. That's, that door's locked. You'll want to go out the back one there. Um, so there, there, we, there we go. All right. 
So the Druids were probably swept up in this as well, correct? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, you bet. Anybody outside the, uh, outside the norm would, uh, would definitely uh, experience, uh, experience all of that. Yes, the sun is hitting the back wall. <laughs> and I'm feeling the heat uh, coming our direction. I don't think we're going to have winter this year, unfortunately. Um, all right, let's uh, introduce... Yes, sir. Uh, this, this late in the medieval period, was there still a remnant? I was kind of bouncing on Ray's question about the Druids. Was there still a remnant of pre-Christian paganism in Europe that was underground that, that while like 99% of the people you're talking about were innocent, and, um, that there may have been like a small remnant of men and women who were you know, clinging on to a lot of this? Yeah, probably in the in the backwoods or places like that, Germany and things things like that. Sure, yeah, I would assume that there was. I've never done much of a study of the history of uh, the survivors of paganism in uh, medieval Europe, but uh, given that it continues this day, I don't know if that's just a revival. I, I think there was probably always some of that there. Yeah. Now the subject of mysticism is uh, is, a, is a large one. We won't finish it this morning uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and it's interesting to me that mysticism exists in every religion I've ever encountered. It doesn't matter what religion it is. Um, glad to see you come back, brother. Good. Uh, figured if you were gone another five minutes, we'd send a rescue party after you. Um, uh, it doesn't matter what religion I've studied, given enough time, within a few generations of its start, there's going to be some type of mystical um, group that is going to uh, develop within its midst that views the main line as too dogmatic or cold or cerebral or orthodox, creedal, whatever terms you want to use, but... Uh, and they're looking for more of an experiential aspect of that particular uh, faith. And so there's mysticism within Islam, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism. Uh, there are Mormon mystics. Um, the only group, yeah, the only group that I would say is an exception. I've never met a mystical Jehovah's Witness. Uh, no, uh, they. They are excommunicated instantaneously. Um, just automatic, uh, do not pass go, do not collect $200. You know, that doesn't work for a lot of people anymore. You know, you know, you know, how many young people today have any idea what you're talking about when you say, do not pass go, do not collect $200? Mm. <sighs> Isn't that sad? <laughs> it's, just, it's just so sad. They're looking at you like, what are these old people talking about? They're speaking in code. Well, you ought to, you ought to listen to us listening to you talking about speaking in code. Uh, we're sitting there going, what language are they talking about? Anyway, um, so, you, you know, you have the Sufis uh, amongst the, the, the Muslims uh, looking for that mystical experience, and uh, you have the Christian mystics. But mysticism is normally associated with this medieval, late medieval uh, time period. Um, and uh, many of these people uh, sought ecstasy, a uh, direct connection with God, that mystical experience, a vision of God. Um, scholasticism, can you, you know, after, after working through the ontological argument last week, can, can you sort of see how some people would not find that to be the most 
soul-fulfilling type of thing. You know what I mean? Uh, you want, want something a little bit more than uh, you know, thinking through these uh, ontological categories and stuff like that. And, and uh, so you, you put together uh, scholasticism, uh, and then you put together the corruption of the church. Yes, sir. Now, when you say East and West, you mean Orthodox, Orthodox versus? Uh, they, they develop in parallel ways. I think it's earlier. Well, you can, you can find some elements of mysticism all the way back with the Desert Fathers, in a sense. You know, normally, the term is being used here of Catherine of Siena, Meister Eckhart, people like that, um, specifically in reaction to scholasticism. So there, there's always been, you know, every generation has its mystics, I suppose. Uh, this was just simply a real explosion of it in light of scholasticism, the corruption of the church, things like that. But the East, the East not only had it as an addendum, but it, in many ways it became mainstream. I mean, when you think of the Eastern Orthodox emphasis upon energia, the energies, uh, that's a very mystical concept. And um, Eastern Orthodox uh, eschewing of dogma. It's the experience, it's the liturgy uh, as the central authority. Yeah, it's mainstreamed mysticism in some sense. But then again, if you look at most of the Western cathedrals today, Lords, Fatima, there's strong mystical elements to those too. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's everywhere. Um, you have the Babylonian captivity of the church. You have the, the, the papacy leaving Rome and going to Avignon. Um, all these things left a vacuum into which mysticism um, you know, moved or, or found a, a breeding ground, I guess you, should, you might say, uh, more than it had been in previous centuries by, by a good bit. We'll just try to cover one real quickly here. That's Catherine of Siena. Uh, 1347 to 1380, you put those numbers together, uh, that's 33. Um, she first joined the Black Mantles, an ascetic group that flagellated themselves, whipped themselves daily. Uh, she devoted herself to prayer, the life of an ascetic, uh, ministered to the sick. Supposedly Christ appeared to her and asked her to be his bride. He gave her a ring. Um, she then asked for the stigmata, how many of you know, how many of you honestly know what the stigmata are? One, two, three, four, a few of you. Uh, the, the stigmata are the marks of the crucifixion. And so a, um, uh, many of the Roman Catholic saints uh, allegedly manifested these stigmata, which would mean bleeding from well, what's interesting to me is many of them bled from the palms of their hands. That's not where Jesus would have been nailed. It was popular, popular uh, folklore, um, but you can't nail someone to a cross in the palms of their hands. They will not stay there. Um, there's nothing to hold you there. Uh, nailing to a cross beam would be in the wrist because then you have bones to hold you in place. But interestingly enough, these stigmata wouldn't be in the wrist. They'd be in the palms of the hands, which can tell you something there, I suppose. 
Um, but the, how many of you have heard of uh, Padre Pio? Anyone heard of Padre Pio? Just, just one person. Not too many former Roman Catholics in our group here, I see. Uh, are you former Roman Catholic? Yes. There you go. Um, uh, if, if, this was, if, if we were in New York, if we were in New York on Long Island, uh, everybody in the room would know all about uh, Padre Pio. Um, I think he died, what, less than a century ago. Um, maybe, I, I forget what his dates were, but anyway, he's extremely popular. Stigmata had to, you know, always have his hands bandaged because they were bleeding. His feet would bleed, his side would bleed. Had, you know, these were, these were signs of close communion with Christ. And so this is something that Catherine of Siena requested for herself. Uh, would be to uh, possess the, uh, the stigmata. Unfortunately, there's more to go, but the explanation of the stigmata kept us from finishing up. So, uh, make a note uh, in case I forget. We're sort of halfway through Catherine of Siena and talking about the mystics as we uh, ran out of time. All right? Let's close the word of prayer. Father, once again, we thank you for the opportunity of looking back. And even though we often uh, see things that are troubling to us, we just ask that you would help us to have proper understanding, see how we have been influenced, even by errors in the past in our modern day, so we might properly have a vantage point to look at ourselves with some, some level of objectivity. But Lord, in all these things, may we be reminded that your word is always the touchstone. It's always the standard And when your people forget that, uh, bad things can happen. And so with that in mind, Lord, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word in the next hour. May we hear and may you be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.